So there's lots of different images or pictures of who God is. Uh, you can get in the Bible. Some have been painted for you through whatever religious paradigm or church you grew up in. There's lots of images of God out there and most people live with one dominant image of God. So he's the God of love, or he's a, he, he's a good God, or he's a good father, or he's, he's a friend of sinners, and that's an image people have of who God is. But when you read the scriptures, he is also just, and he is also holy, and he is also righteous, and he is perfect in every way. And one of the dangers of Christian spirituality is that we tend to see God exclusively in one way, which then drives the way that we live in the world. So, so when, I, when, I, when I'm too casual with God and I have just an image of him as like this loving kind of, kind of you know, God, cosmic being, then, then, then I, I'm not really evaluating my ways like I should be. And what begins to happen is we so reduce God to the point that we no longer really have any fear of the Lord in us. Being too familiar with God can oftentimes even look like making excuses for sin in our life allowing sin to perpetuate in our life because this isn't that big of a deal. Jesus understands uh, I'm doing good in so many other areas. We become flippant, we become casual. We begin to think like God's good with it. He understands. You see, the fear of the Lord is intended to help us resist being too afraid of God and also being too casual with God, too familiar with God. The fear of the Lord holds together the different aspects of who God is to keep us in awe of Him. Welcome, it's good to see you today. Uh, great to be in church. Uh, we are in uh, week four of a teaching series called Becoming Wise. And uh, it's a series that I'm really enjoying uh, teaching through. Um, the heart behind this series, if you haven't been with us, has just been for me to be able to share with you some of the things God's been doing to me. To share with you some of the things the Holy Spirit's been doing in my soul over the last few months. Um, I've been in a season of needing some wisdom. Uh, I've been needing wisdom in terms of my own life. Um, there have been things kind of uh, resurfacing in my life that I, I've been surprised by, and I'm like, God, I need wisdom for this. There's been things in terms of our, our family and challenges we've been facing. There's obviously been, been some things in terms of our church. Uh, we've been in a time of needing direction, needing to hear from the Lord, needing to know what the best next step is in terms of, of our church. So I've just been in this season of needing wisdom. And so I've been reading through the book of Proverbs for the last several months. And Proverbs is a book that is full of wisdom for how to navigate life. And, um, and, and so what I thought I'd do is just in this series, share with you some of the things God's been doing in me. And I think maybe it'll help you in your own journey as well. And I, I think all of us probably could use more wisdom in our life, uh, no matter how much you have. And, and there's some of you just by the looks, uh, you probably have a lot of wisdom, uh, right? Uh, but I think no matter how old you are or how wise you are, you can use more wisdom. Is that true? And, and so, uh, you know, when you look at like the world we're in right now, it's amazing to think about how much different the world is today than it was even five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, how much the world is, is changing uh, so quickly. Think about all the technological advances that happened in just five years Think about the, the changes in terms of like ideologies and values and lifestyles and worldviews. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. Everything's just changing and evolving so quickly. Things that were not accepted now are. Things that were bad or wrong are now good. Everything's just changing so quickly. And so I think it would benefit all of us to have many different times throughout a year where we step back and we just ask the question like, where's my wisdom at? Is my wisdom keeping up? 
Is my wisdom keeping pace with everything that is swirling and changing uh, around me? And so I've been in the book of Proverbs, been reading through it. And as I've been reading through it, one of the, the, the things that's repetitive in the book of Proverbs is that Solomon talks about what's called the fear of the Lord. And it's, it's mentioned many different times throughout this book. He talks about the fear of the Lord. And so I've been looking at that, been, been trying to figure out a couple things like, like what is the fear of the Lord and how does it show up? How does it manifest in my life currently and how should it? You know, uh, how should it actually manifest in my life? And so I kind of want to look at that today. Solomon writes and he says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What does this mean? And how do we get it? And, uh, and, and, and what, is, what does this really look like in our lives? A lot of you know that uh, I have four daughters. Uh, our youngest two are six. And so one of the things you learn really quickly when you have young children, when you're raising young kids, is that you are required to watch kids' movies. Right? So... Uh, for many years now, we have been heavily invested in all things Disney, all things animation, all things Pixar, right? And so as a dad, as a guy that is just surrounded by ladies in my house, whenever I get the chance to pick the movie, it's going to be something like Cars, Toy Story, right? Monsters, Inc., whatever. The case. I'm going to pick something that, uh, that is more up my alley. One of my favorite movies to watch uh, with the kids is, is uh, uh, Monsters, Inc., and, and uh, it's a great movie, if you guys remember that. Um, the premise behind this movie is that these monsters sneak into the bedroom of kids at night, right? It's, awesome. it's a great, sounds like Disney, doesn't it? Uh, like, what kind of message are we sending? So uh, these, these monsters sneak into the bedroom of children at night to scare them because the screams of the children are what would power the city of Monstropolis, right? So the screams of the children were the energy source of the city. Uh, in other words, fear is what would power the city. Now, at the end of the movie, I'm not going to give it all away, but they ended up finding another energy source for the city. Um, but what I want to do is I want to kind of focus on that, that one thought from, from the movie that, that in Monsters, Inc., fear is what powered the city of Monstropolis. Fear is what powered the city of Monstropolis. Now, this is a great movie. I, I, I like it. And, and but I think it goes beyond just being a good family film. I think that there is, there is something about Monsters, Inc. that serves as a powerful metaphor for the kind of world that we find ourselves in right now, the kind of political world that we find ourselves in, the kind of social world we find ourselves in, quite honestly. The, even on some level, the kind of religious world we find ourselves in. In fact, I'd say it like this, that very similar to Monsters, Inc., the fall, this fallen world is powered by fear. It's powered by fear. Like everywhere you look, is fear. Like whether it's in the media, it's in the news, it's all driven by fear. Every direction we look right now, like it is, it is just very much fear-driven, fear-based. And what I've noticed, and maybe you have as well, and you know, especially for me, you know, since I've studied like uh, the history of the church for, for a long time, it seems like all too often Christianity has fallen into this trap as well, where Christianity has been powered by fear. And you know, like, like when, you, when, you, when you look at like preachers or you look at, at evangelists or people who have like talked about sharing the gospel, there's been, a, you know, at least, at least for me growing up, there was a lot of like turn or burn messages, right? Trying to, trying to like get people into heaven through fear. Like, like, and, and so um, in 1927, British mathematician uh, Bertrand Russell, a uh, well-known atheist, he wrote uh, an essay entitled, Why I'm Not a Christian. 
He said his primary reason for not being a Christian was due to what he called the relationship that existed between religion and fear. And he said this, he said, he said, religion is based, I think, primarily and mainly upon fear. It's partly the terror of the unknown and partly, as I have said, the wish to feel that you have a kind of elder brother who will stand by you in all of your troubles and disputes. Fear is the basis of the whole thing. Fear of the mysterious, fear of defeat, fear of death. Fear is the parent of cruelty, and therefore it is no wonder if cruelty and religion has gone hand in hand. Now, Russell, in this, in this essay, like he, he begins to talk about how science is what he thinks we should look to for dealing with our irrational fears. Obviously, I don't agree with him. Obviously, I, I think that he was, uh, he was wrong uh, in, in terms of his conclusion, but he does hit on something that I think is really, really important. It's this idea that too often, I think, people are scared into religion. Too often. Seems to me that one of the primary reasons for why so many people have been turned off or given up on Christianity altogether uh, is because of how their experience with it was driven by fear. Fear has sadly played a huge role in religion over the years. I think for many generations, preachers have tried to get us uh, you know, to convert by using fear. Talks of hell and fire and death and Jesus' imminent return. Or maybe you've been like at a revival service or something and the pastor says something like, Jesus loves you, but if you don't say yes to God tonight, something bad is gonna happen to you, right? So you might as well, like, like, like don't leave here because if you leave here and you walk out without saying yes to Jesus, you might get hit by a bus, right? And you might die and then you might go to hell. And so there's been a lot of fear tactics sort of, sort of leveraged or used in terms of getting people into, uh, in, into the church. Um, I don't know if you, if you remember some of you maybe like listening on the radio or watching on TV, different preachers who would predict the date that Jesus was going to return. You know, like, like there, I remember there was a guy uh, in California who did this, and, and uh, uh, I mean, he had people actually selling their homes and, and moving out to California, and they all just sat there and they waited for the day that Jesus was supposed to return, and Jesus never came back, and so they, he ended up having to revise his prediction and just pick another date. I want you to know that every date he's picked, he was wrong, right? And so what happens is a lot of times people do this. They try to predict the date to get people to convert to Jesus or to Christianity out of fear. And when they get the particular date wrong, like I just said, they just pick another date. So the point is that Christians for many years, I think, have tried to use a strategy kind of like this, and it hasn't really, really worked well. But one of the things I've been, I've been noticing over the years, I think I noticed it as a parent, I just noticed it as a human being, is that fear is a great motivator to change behavior if that's what you're interested in. Like, if that's, all I, if that's all I'm interested in when it comes to my kids, like, I can, I can leverage fear. Like, how many of y'all know I can come up with some pretty creative consequences that will get their behavior right if that's all I'm really interested in? In fact, the more skilled someone is at promoting fear, the more power that person gains. We see this all the time because fear is a great political strategy. Dictators have used it for millennia, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's a great political strategy, but this is what I know this is what I've learned as a parent, as a human being. This is what I'm learning is that even though fear can motivate people to change their behavior, it is impossible for fear to transform someone's heart. It's impossible. It doesn't work this way. I can, I can, I can create rules. I, I can create consequences. I can, I can up the ante. I can say, if you do this, this is going to happen. And I can, I can invoke fear to, to, to produce the right kind of behavior. But fear has never been useful for changing someone's heart. And so in terms of like Bertrand Russell, in terms of people who talk about like fear and religion and how they have seemed to mix over the years, we have to ask ourselves like, is, 
uh, is the essence of Christianity fear-based or not? Like, like, where does this idea come from? And, and so Proverbs begins with this difficult statement. I told you I've been wrestling with it for a number of, of weeks now. It says that to become wise, you must begin with the fear of the Lord. So, so this is difficult because it seems to kind of sit in contrast to what so many people think in terms of fear and religion not mixing very well. And, and, and so if, if religion and fear are bad things, how do we reconcile this tension? Well, the phrase, as I mentioned, the fear of the Lord, it shows up actually 10 times throughout the book of Proverbs. I'm going to show you uh, five of them here. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the, beginning, is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 2.5, Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 10, 27, the fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. So Proverbs, what's interesting is it, it, it repeats this over and over again. And, and we, you see it as you read throughout this book. And what's interesting to me, what stood out to me, is that every time it's mentioned, Solomon frames the fear of the Lord as a good thing. The fear of the Lord is a good thing. In, 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 the, in the book of Proverbs. And yet most people believe that fear in religion is a, is, is a bad thing. And so it begs this question, what is the fear of the Lord? What exactly is this? What are we talking about? What is being communicated here in the book of Proverbs? And so before I explain what exactly the fear of the Lord is, I wanna first clarify what it's not. Because I think that so many people live their lives uh, in, in contrast to the fear of the Lord. Like the way they're walking it out, it's like, it's like that's the exact opposite or it's in contrast to what the fear of the Lord is all about. So in my opinion, there are, there are two views that are contrasted against the fear of the Lord. They kind of sit on, on opposite ends of the spectrum. So you have people who are afraid of God and then you have people over here who are too familiar with God. And right there in the middle is what the fear of the Lord is all about. And oftentimes what you find in any given church is people kind of living on, on, in, in one of the extremes they're either afraid of God or they're too familiar with God. Both of these views are set against, in my opinion, what it means to live into the fear of the Lord. I want to talk about them both. So we're going to talk first about what it means to be afraid of God and what that looks like for so many people. I think a lot of people misinterpret the fear of the Lord to mean that we're to be afraid of God. And I think, I think that's because that's been a lot of people's experience with God and with church is that he is this very scary figure that he, and he is to be feared like because he's, he's, if you mess up, he's going he's gonna to get you. So many people have been taught, either consciously or subconsciously, to walk on eggshells with God. Because any wrong move can lead to punishment. So tragically, when you interact with God like this, as many of you probably have at a time in your life, you end up seeing God as moody, as irritable, as angry, as volatile, as a violent cosmic being just waiting for us to mess up so that he can pounce. You ever related to God like that? Many people view God as kind of this, this, this cosmic whack-a-mole person. You remember the game from like the carnival or, or the arcade, you know, the, the whack-a-mole where these, these, these little like plastic mole-like figures pop up out of the hole and you got to use the hammer to knock them down before they, 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 uh, they retreat back down underneath. A lot of people view God this way, this cosmic whack-a-mole person who's got a hammer in his hand just waiting for us to mess up. So like you didn't pray, whack. You're not reading your Bible right now? Whack. You're falling into some sin? Whack, right? Struggling with some, some, some doubt, some, 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 uh, 
fear, you're struggling with your faith, whack. Like he's just waiting there to get you. And, and I, know, I know this, this can kind of, kind of sound extreme because you may be sitting there going like, well, that's not exactly the image I have of God. And I think, I think, I think some do picture God this way. Others like, like subconsciously do it. And, and this, this is what I mean. I think, I think that, that what happens is that over time, we, we actually begin to interpret life whenever things don't go our way as like God being a responsible for our problems. And so we sit there and think like, man, I didn't get the job I wanted. God must be judging me. That's it's like the cosmic whack-a-mole, like, like whack, right? And, and, and we think that, that you know, man, I got, I got sick or something's not going right. God must be judging me right now or someone mistreated me again. I didn't get, you know, what I, what I thought, you know, I should have got. And so, so God must be behind this. He must be judging me. You know, some of us are like, like man, I couldn't find a parking spot. Like, what did, what did I do wrong? I must have done something wrong. God must be upset with me. And I just want to say this to you because I think it's really key. And I think, that, I think that really what I'm talking about right now has been some of the bread and butter here at our church for a long time. Because there's been a huge, like, passion of mine for a long time to help reframe for, reframe for people, like, an accurate view of who God is. Because I think a lot of times we carry around distorted pictures and ideas of who God is. But, but this is what I want you to catch. To live afraid of God is to live in bondage. To live afraid of God is to live in bondage. Because when you're afraid of God, here's what happens. You try your best to avoid God's anger by keeping all the rules. But did you know that you can keep all the rules and not have a renewed heart? Because fear is a great motivator to change behavior, but it, it doesn't work in terms of, of transforming someone's heart. This is religion at its worst, right? Keeping all the rules and not having a transformed heart. And so it's simply, all it is is behavior modification. Changing behavior without changing the heart. Now, if that's, if that's my goal as a parent, like I'm, I'm not a very good dad, am I? If all I really care about is my kids changing their behavior, then I'm not, I'm not parenting well, I'm not disciplining well. Like, like at the heart of how I parent needs to be that I wanna see their heart change. I wanna see them understand why and not and be motivated not to do that again. And so we wanna go beyond behavior modification. All of us as followers of Jesus, we want our hearts to change. In Luke chapter 15, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, Jesus tells a parable of the prodigal son. Now, many people have argued that it's a story that really should be called the good father because of how good the father is in this story. It's famously called the prodigal son, as you know. And for the purposes this morning, sometimes I can read the, the story of the prodigal son and think about how it's really a story of two sons. Maybe it should be called like, yeah, the, 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 the parable of the two sons uh, in, in many ways because in this story, I don't want you to forget that both of the sons are lost. One is far from home and is lost. The other is still living in his father's house and is equally as lost. So if you remember the story, right, the younger son comes to his father one day and he asks for his share of the inheritance. I mean, the way they did inheritance back then is very similar to ours now. It's usually something you inherit once your parents have passed away. And so by him going, coming to his father saying, I want my inheritance now, I don't want to wait, he's essentially saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me, give me my share now. I've thought about asking my parents uh, for my share a time or two.
And so what happens is, is his dad finally gives in. He gives his son his share of the inheritance. And as, and as you know the story, like he goes off. As soon as he gets the check, he cashes it. He's out of town and, and he, he goes to a far off land and begins to live a wild life full of, of, of just every kind of indulgence you can imagine. He's, he's, he's eating at the nicest restaurants. He's, he's uh, you know, having uh, relationships with all kinds of people. He's just doing it all, anything he can think of. He's living the wild life to the point that he, he blows through his entire inheritance and now has nothing left and he is literally like eating and sleeping with the pigs. And so the younger son, is, as we all kind of know about the story of the prodigal son, is he is lost and he's far from home. The other son, he stayed in the house. He didn't leave. He obeyed the rules. But what we understand in the story is that he too was far from home. Even though he stayed in the house, like he was far from home. The younger son led a careless, appetite-driven, zero-discernment life. He was wasteful, he was undisciplined, and he was far from home. The older son was very responsible, right? He went to church every Sunday. He gave generously. He was a model citizen. On the surface, it looked like he was home, and he was physically. But spiritually and emotionally, the, the older son was just as lost, and because he was so afraid of breaking the rules, he finds himself angry. In Luke 15, 28, it says the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the son comes home. He's, he's, the younger son comes home. He's welcomed by the father. The, 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 the father is so glad that his, that his son finally returned home that he throws a huge banquet, invites his friends, kills the fattened calf. And the, young, and the older brother becomes angry, refuses to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. It's interesting here because the elder brother did all the right things, but what is revealed in this scripture is that his heart was really far from his father. And I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this, but what I've noticed at, at times is some of the angriest people are the ones who have always been good. They've always kind of kept the rules. Good behavior, they do all the right stuff. What we find in the story is that this son is actually trying to control what he receives from the father by his good behavior. It's actually manipulation. He's, he's, he's keeping the rules out of a motivation to receive more from his father or to receive what he thinks should be uh, what he deserves. And, and he, is, he, is, he is offended when he sees that his younger brother receives just as much as him, if not more. And I think that so often people who are afraid of God, catch this, people who are afraid of God try to control God by their good behavior. They follow the rules as a means to try to pacify God. So it's, it's not coming from a place of like heart transformation. It's, at, it's coming from a place of like, if I do this, then I will get this. And it's actually rooted in paganism. It's rooted in polytheism. It's rooted in cultures that worshiped many gods. Like, you know, when you think of Greek mythology, I mean, how irritable were the gods? Like, if you mess up, they're gonna zap you, right? Like, and so they live their lives to try to appease the gods, to pacify the gods. And that's still what so many people do now. It's rooted in, 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 in paganism following the rules to try to pacify God so he doesn't get angry. I want you to look at this thought with me. So many people either consciously or subconsciously live afraid of God instead of with a healthy fear of God, and the two are not the same. 
The two are not the same. Because so many people have grown up in a paradigm that if they mess up, God's going to get them, he's going to zap them. And as a result, they're afraid to get too close to God. You think about the picture that so many people have of who God is, right? That he's angry, that he's irritable, that he's volatile. Like, who wants to get close to a God like that? Who wants to get close to a God like that? Who, who would be the, 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 the one uh, who, would, who, who would have the most to gain by, by people not wanting to get close to God? Is that not a strategy of your enemy? Now, on the opposite end of being afraid of God, so the spectrum again, there's another way we can live that also causes us to not live in the fear of the Lord, and that is to, to be too familiar with God. So you got people who are afraid of God, and then I think a lot of times we have people who are too familiar with God. So this is where we're, we're too casual with God. So some of us are, are afraid, and some of us are too casual. I, I remember uh, several years ago, there was like a popular marketing uh, you know, ploy, T-shirts and hats, uh, it had a slogan on them, Jesus is my homeboy. Remember that? Anybody remember that? I wish I should have put the picture up, but it was like Jesus with this like huge chain and medallion and he's pointing at you and he's got his hat on and it's like, Jesus is my homeboy. Funny and trendy for sure, but it shows how flippant we can also be with Jesus. I think that being too familiar with God in my own life often, often looks like this. It looks like making decisions without any thought of God. Because there's an assumption that I sometimes carry that he's, he's, just, he's good with it. He'll, he understands. It's no, it's no big deal. Like, he, he's, he's, he's a good father. He's loving. Even if it's wrong, he'll be okay with it. God oftentimes doesn't factor into our decisions that we make with our money. He doesn't factor into the decisions, you know, uh, that we make with our bodies. He doesn't factor into the decisions we make with our relationships or with our careers, we, we make a lot of decisions without any thought of God. Without, we, we, we can just assume that what we want is what God wants. When, when really, like, like I, have to, I have to take my motivations and kind of run them through the scriptures, run them through the Holy Spirit and go, man, like, is there any wicked way in me? Is there any possibility that I'm like, I'm just pursuing like my own uh, goals, my own desires, and God hasn't factored into my decisions. I want you to look at this thought. I think we know we've become too familiar with God when our prayers are usually centered around asking him to bless what we've already decided to do. Asking him to bless what we've already decided to do. He doesn't really get a way in on the matter because we've predetermined what we're gonna do. Listen to me, that's being too familiar with God. That's being too flippant or too casual with God. Assuming he's fine with it, like he understands it's gonna be okay. And what begins to happen is we so reduce God to the point that we no longer really have any fear of the Lord in us. Being too familiar with God can oftentimes even look like making excuses for sin in our life, allowing sin to perpetuate in our life because this isn't that big of a deal. Jesus understands uh, I'm doing good in so many other areas. I'm doing more than most. We become flippant, we become casual. We begin to think like God's good with it. He understands. You see, the fear of the Lord is intended to help us resist being too afraid of God and also being too casual with God, 
too familiar with God. The fear of the Lord holds together the different aspects of who God is to keep us in awe of him, okay? Let me say that again. The fear of the Lord holds together the different aspects of who God is to keep us in awe of him. Let me, let me explain it like this if you're taking notes. Many Christians will live according to one dominant image of God. And as a result, they end up with a distorted picture of who he is. So there's lots of different images or pictures of who God is. You can get in the Bible. Some have been painted for you through whatever religious paradigm or church you grew up in. There's lots of images of God out there. And most people live with one dominant image of God. So he's the God of love or he's a, he, he's a good God, or he's a good father, or he's, he's a friend of sinners, and that's an image people have of who God is. But when you read the scriptures, he is also just, and he is also holy, and he is also righteous, and he is perfect in every way. And one of the dangers of Christian spirituality is that we tend to see God exclusively in one way, which then drives the way that we live in the world. So so when, I, when, I, when I'm too casual with God and I have just an image of him as like this loving kind of, kind of you know, God, cosmic being, then, then, then I, I'm not really evaluating my ways like I should be. Some people only ever see God as like this cosmic teddy bear. He's always nice. He's always understanding of our sins. He's always understanding of our failures, telling us just to do better next time. Oh, well, that's all right. No worries. Just, hey, hey, just don't do that again. Just do, do better next time. Some people only see God as a comforting father. And it is true that he is this. He for sure is this. But this is not the only image of God that we have in the Bible. He is also a, a consuming fire. He is a comforting father, but he is also a consuming fire. And so often we only lean towards the one dominant Im image of God that we like more than the others. I'd rather, I'd rather personally lean more towards a God who's like a teddy bear and is kind and nice and good and gentle than I would to one who is a consuming fire that if I get too close to him, this, you know, everything about me is just going to burn up and not be there anymore. I'd rather be over here because it's a lot safer because if I get closer to a God who is a consuming fire, I might lose some things I don't want to lose. Some things get, might, get, get, might get burned up in that fire that I just don't want to completely get rid of. But here's, here's what we got to understand about this. If you're taking notes, to know and understand God is to hold intention the different images we have of him. You got to hold intention the different images. We don't just lean into one dominant thought and think like, and, 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 and believe that we have a, a complete picture of who God is. Theologian and church father Thomas Aquinas said this. He says, we need a lot of images of God. The more images we have, the less likely we are to identify them with God and the more likely we are to realize that God is the incomprehensible mystery behind all images. So in terms of being a comforting father and being a consuming fire, listen to me, he's not one or the other. Both are true. He's both. And this is why in my life, especially lately in the last few months, I have felt like that, that I've needed to have different prayer postures, different postures of prayer. Because I don't want to just get to the point in my life where I only have one image of God in my mind. I want my prayer life to reflect that I'm holding intention, the different images of who God is. And so sometimes when I come into prayer before the Lord, like I do, I sit down and, and there's this, 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 man, this relationship with a loving father, a comforting father. 
I open my hands up and it's very casual and I just, I sense the love of a good father as the friend of sinners and I'm just, I'm just grateful to be around him and I'm having a very casual conversation with the Lord. I've talked to you before about how prayer usually, usually flows in my life, you know, just, just relationship, casual. I'm sitting there just enjoying the presence of God. It's a beautiful thing. But other times, other times, my prayer posture is one of being on my face. It's one of being on my knees. It's one of just being laid out before the Lord. Because he is not just a comforting father, he is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords. He is God and I am not. And there are times where my prayer, my prayer life needs to reflect who he really is. He is a comforting father, but he's more than that. He's the God of the universe. He's the God who spoke this world into existence. He is the king of kings. He is a consuming fire. And there are times where I come before the Lord and I'm like, woe to me, just like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips, but my eyes have seen the king. (laughs) My eyes have seen him. And who am I? And I just fall down and I'm like, God, I can't, I can't just, I can't stand in your presence. Who am I? I lay out before the Lord. Because he's God and I'm not. And if there's one of the things I've been learning the most lately in terms of wisdom, it's that he is God and I am not. And I have a propensity to try to play his role in my life. Look at this with me. Too often, or if I get too familiar with God, if I get too familiar with God where he's always my homeboy and never gets mad at sin, I'll always have a distorted relationship with him. I'll always have a distorted relationship with him. And so sometimes in prayer, like physically, like I mean physically with our bodies, sometimes in prayer, with our reverence, we need to reflect the comprehensive nature of who God is. I remember, I remember my aunt, uh, Christy, telling me one time when she had a, a radical encounter with the presence of God, the glory of God, uh, she was in a class she was taking at the church uh, that they were attending at the time, and it was just a class, like a Wednesday class, and they were seeking God, and like she said, the, 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 like the glory of the Lord filled the room, and she said, it went, I mean, it's amazing, it's unbelievable, but it was, it was really clear that like that's God, and it, and, it, and, it, and it put into sharp contrast the difference between her and him, and she said she literally like got underneath her chair because it was like terrifying in a sense. It's like, this is the God of the universe. So sometimes even with our bodies in prayer, with our reverence in prayer and in our time for the Lord, like, like we need to reflect the comprehensive nature of who he is. He's God and I'm not. This is really what the fear of the Lord is all about. And so, and so let's just get into that. What does the fear of the Lord mean? What, is, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Look at this with me, and here's, here's, here's a little bit of a short definition. I'm sure you can find a lot longer ones out there. But to fear the Lord means to be in awe and wonder of God. Not afraid of him, not too familiar or too casual with him, but in awe and wonder of him. Eugene Peterson puts it like this. He says, there is a fear that incapacitates us for dealing with God. That's what we talked about, being afraid of God. You know, how do I deal with God? I'm... And then there is a fear that pulls us out of our preoccupation with ourselves, our feelings, or our circumstances into a world of wonder. 
pulls us out of ourselves into the very action of God. And so a healthy fear of the Lord has to be understood as reverence, has to be understood as awe, as wonder, developing a posture where we're open to being amazed by God is something that has to be cultivated in our life. Like, I have to be amazed by him. I need to live my life with a healthy fear of the Lord where I'm living in awe and wonder at his works, at how good he is, at what he has done in my life. And this posture has to be developed in like our quiet times with the Lord. Like there's no shortcuts to this. You don't just roll out of bed one day and have like a highly developed sense of the fear of the Lord in your life. It has to be developed. It takes an intentional departure from the ways of the world so that we can be more open to the ways of God. Eugene Peterson in his book, uh, living the resurrection, he talks about the fear of the Lord like this. And if you don't, aren't familiar with who Eugene Peterson is, he, he's the one who, uh, who authored the, the message translation of the Bible. He's written several books, uh, a pastor, author, theologian. But he writes this about the fear of the Lord in uh, living uh, the resurrection. He says this, uh, you can go throw that on the screen. He says, he says, the fear of the Lord is where, you know, you are feeling fear because you're being confronted by something that is more and something that is other, Okay. So this is like more than me, and this is like otherworldly. Like, I, there, so there is there is like a fear that I have because I'm being I'm I'm coming face to face with something that is unusual, something that is bigger than me, something that's more and something that's other. But that something that is more and other is God, right? It's God. So he says he says the fear of the Lord is is that gut feeling of fear that you have. So it's a proper understanding of, of who God is, is 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 in His power. And in his ability to do whatever he wants, there's this gut feeling of fear. But then he says it's also, you add that to uh, the many different times in the New Testament where, like when the angels appeared and they said, do not be afraid. Or when Jesus appears to his disciples after his resurrection, enters into the room, passes through the door, and he says, Don't be, do not be afraid. He says, so, so the fear of the Lord is like this gut feeling of fear just in terms of like his majesty, how huge he is, how powerful he is, coupled with this promise and, and, and this, you know, to, to not be afraid. Don't be afraid. And so he goes on and he says, he says, the fear of the Lord is where we are in an other or an unworldly situation. When you are with God, when you, when you are encountering God, when you are with him, uh, you know, before him in his presence, you are in an unworldly situation. Do you understand that? And in this unworldly situation, we're not in control, but we're, but we're also not in danger. That's, that's, that's what the fear of the Lord is. It's where you're not in control, but you're not in danger. Instead, you're deep in mystery. You're deep in mystery about who God is. And then he goes on, he says that the key ingredient that transforms fear into the fear of the Lord is wonder. Wonder. So when I am in awe and wonder of God, I want you to know that I'm not afraid of him, but I'm also not too familiar with him either. I'm not, it's not casual. The fear of the Lord is a love that, that fears to disappoint. I think what I've noticed is that, you know, we aren't usually afraid to disappoint someone that we have chosen to trust. Like, if I've chosen to put my trust in you, then it's on my terms. So if I disappoint you, it's, it's not that big a deal to me because I'm the one who has, who has uh, put the terms on the relationship, but... I think that we're much more likely to be afraid of being worthy of the trust that someone has chosen to give us. So we live sometimes with a healthy fear. I don't know if any of you 
you know, grew up living with a healthy fear of your parents? Anybody? I don't know if any of your children are growing up living with a healthy fear of you. That's not always a bad thing. So in my own life, I think that almost after uh, 18 years of marriage, I have developed uh, what I would call a healthy fear of my wife. Uh, healthy fear. Sometimes it's not healthy, but most of the times it's healthy. Um, there are things that I can do at times that make me not too excited about facing my wife, right? Like uh, not cleaning out the sink after I shave, right? I, she's, you know, I hear her ask me, you know, through the house, hey, you know, did you, you know, not clean? And I'm, I'm like, I don't want to don't face her. Um, or forgetting to put the trash can out at the street. I've done that a couple times. And it's like six in the morning and the, like the garbage truck's coming through our neighborhood and it's like, she's like, did you put the, and I'm like, oh shoot. And then he's already gone and we have like so much trash that week. Um, getting home later than I said I would. Uh, I don't like to face my wife. If, uh, I said I'd be home at five and it's now six or forgetting to tell her that I have like an elders meeting that night. Uh, I remember like, yeah, multiple times walking out the door in the morning and she's like, what do you want to do for dinner tonight? I'm like, I don't know. I'm not going to be home. She's like, you're what? And I'm like, sorry, gotta go. Uh, bracing for impact, bracing for impact. Or settling in to relax for the evening, and, and uh, you know, and I'm like, yeah, it's been a long day, I'm tired, but like the twins haven't had showers, and uh, the food hasn't been put away. It's start to feel the frustration. How many of you know that I have a certain fear of my wife? It's probably healthy, it's probably good, right? I'm not afraid of my wife. I'm not afraid of her when these things happen. I'm not afraid that she's gonna hit me or cause me to, or make me you know, sleep on the couch. But the reality is, the reason why I feel what I feel is because I just, I don't want to disappoint her, you know? And I, I don't want there to be tension in our relationship. I want to main, maintain connection with her in, in this way. I want to be, be thoughtful about my ways, right, when I interact with her. I don't want to have an unhealthy fear, but I, but I do want to have a healthy fear of of my wife. And so the, the fear of the Lord is like this, if you're taking notes, it's an utter preoccupation with God. So, so what's going on a lot of times is when I'm making decisions in my life, when I'm, when I'm doing certain things, my wife is like, oh, she's on my mind. And so I, I'm in many ways preoccupied with, with her and with our relationship. So oftentimes the decisions I'm making, the way things are going, I'm immediately thinking like, how does this affect her and how is she going to react? And, and so the fear of the Lord is there's some similarities to that because the fear of the Lord is having an, an utter preoccupation with God. And so as we're living through life, as we're going through things, like, like, like what does he think about this? What, what, what's, what's on his mind? What does he have to say? And it's a, preoccup, it's a preoccupation with God that leads me to order my life around his ways. And so the question, as I'm, as I'm getting closer, the question is, why does this lead to wisdom? Why does the fear of the Lord lead to wisdom? Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Let me just give you two things that I'm learning, and it's this. It's that the fear of the Lord reminds us that he is God and we are not. He is God and we are not. So are you interested in growing in wisdom? This is where you begin. God is God and I am not. I'm someone that likes to be in control. I like to have an answer. I like to be a leader. I like to think of it as being responsible. I don't like things to be out of control. I don't like things to be up in the air. A lot of times I try to play God. And one of the best things for me to do is to step back 
and one of the best ways to produce wisdom in my life is to just really believe he is God and I am not. Wisdom's about having a proper estimation of ourselves and the fear of the Lord places us exactly where we need to be. When we look at the scriptures, we often see God in all of his glory manifested, especially in the Old Testament. And then you, you see the people who are encountering the glory and the holiness of God and how fully aware they are of how little they are in comparison to God and his glory. Right, Psalm 8, like David writes this, and he says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, he says in verse four, what is man that you are mindful of him? Human beings that you care for them. Like who are we that you have us on your mind? And when we have God in the right place, what happens is we find ourselves situated in the right place as well. When we, when we understand like he is God and I am not, we find ourselves in the right place as well. The Apostle John in uh, the book of Revelation chapter one, this is what he says. Verse 17, he says, when I saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. As though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid, I am first and last I am the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. So John tells us about this vision he has, and he, he says that, that when he sees Jesus, he could not handle the glory of God. He says, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. And when, what I wanna tell you this, like, the reason why this matters is because I think that when we get the glory of God right, we get our own story right. When we get the glory of God right and his power and who he is in, 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 in contrast to us, in relation to us, and we understand where we fit, where we belong. We find ourselves positioned properly. And so this, this fear of the Lord is intended to produce humility in us. In fact, let me, let me just say it like this if you're taking notes. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Because it cultivates humility. He is God and I am not. Humility says I need help. Humility says I don't have all the answers. Humility says I'm finite. Humility says my life is so temporary. Humility says I'm from dust and I will return to dust. The fear of the Lord produces humility in me. And we are living in an age where where like the dominant thought and, and, and leaning in culture is to enthrone ourselves as the, as, as the absolute authority. And the fear of the Lord is what keeps us from doing that very thing. It produces and cultivates humility. The second thing is that I think the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord causes us to live with careful thought. Tim, you guys can go ahead and come up. It causes us to live with careful thoughts. And so we're to live life with the goal of wanting to please God with our life, right? Like this, this, is, the, this is the idea. Like, like we're to live with this goal of wanting to please the Lord. To get the end, to the end of our time here on earth, to stand before God and to hear him say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. That, I mean, this is so much of the purpose of our life. We want to live our lives in such a way that like pleases God. And when you, when you live your life to please God, what happens is you begin to give careful thought to your ways. When it, when it really is about pleasing the Lord, 
when it really is about honoring him with my life, when it really is about, about, about thinking about God and, and, and him looking down with pleasure at how I'm living my life, what that does is it causes me to give careful thought to my ways. So we think about how we're living and we think, you know, for those of us who, who are emotional creatures, you know, you think about, you know, you start to think about how can, I, how can I move away from being so reactive and so driven by emotion? How can I move from that to wanting to give careful thought to my ways? And why am I even motivated by this in the first place? It's because I want to honor God with my life. And I don't want to continue to like just, just give myself over to, to how I've always done things. Well, that's just my personality. I just get angry. Or I just, I just say whatever. I just swear. I'm just, I'm a swear. You know, like, like we have to give careful thought to our ways. Because I want to honor God with my life. I want to worship God. I want to love God. I want to give careful thought to my ways. And whether we're talking about money this morning or whether we're talking about our careers, we want to give careful thought to God. Whether we're talking about relationships or our sexuality, we want to give careful thought to our ways because our life is about pleasing the Lord, about pleasing the Lord. And so the fear of the Lord, if you're taking notes, it, it assumes that God should be involved in all aspects of our life that there is no secular, sacred divide. And this is, this is in complete contrast to how the world operates and functions, right? Because those of you who, who work in, in uh, you know, secular settings, there is, there is a clear sacred, secular divide. There are things you cannot say. But when it comes to our life, this is not true. There are not areas of our life that are open to God and areas of our life that are to be closed off to God. The fear of the Lord assumes that there is not one area of my life in which God should not be involved. That every part of who I am, God wants to be involved in. The fear of the Lord is living with this deep conviction that it all belongs to God. A healthy fear of the Lord says in every area of my life, I wanna honor God. Every area of my life. I wanna reverence him. I wanna be in awe of him. I wanna give it all to God. And so, the fear of the Lord it reminds us that he is God and we are not. And it causes us to live with careful thought. And it is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. Would you stand? Just bow your heads for a moment as we close. If you're here today and you've just been living with a distorted or a partial image of God, maybe it's caused you to live uh, maybe afraid of God as someone that you struggle to know how to get close to and you actually need some some freedom and some deliverance in that area. Could I just see your hand here today? I, I wanna pray for you. If God is someone that, that maybe you struggle to trust, struggle to get close to. Yeah, several hands. Father, I pray right now for freedom in the name of Jesus. I thank you that you are good and that you are kind. We recognize your power 
We recognize that even that there really is a dangerous aspect of you. But we also know that you are good and you are kind and you are faithful. And so, Lord, I ask for right now, every person in, in this room who just acknowledged that maybe they've been walking with a distorted image uh, that, that causes them to live in fear of you. Lord, I pray, pray right now for just, just their mind. Uh, God, that you would just, you would just uh, put on their mind uh, accurate picture of who you are right now. Every, every opportunity the enemy has, has tried to just, just come in and, and paint a picture of you that is false, that is not right, God, I pray for freedom in this area in Jesus' name. Right now, I pray that these people would begin to interact with you in a healthy way. I thank you, God, that you are not out there to get us, to zap us, to, to, to hit us over the head, but you're there to, to be in relationship with us, to know us, to love us, to be good and kind to us, God. And if you're here today and you would say, you know, Pastor Jordan, I, I am someone who has, has tended to live a life that is too familiar with God, meaning I have just allowed things to happen and to continue to exist in my life that I know are probably wrong. I've just kind of lived under this, this idea that, you know, God's, God, God knows me. He understands me. He's, he, he, you know, he's fine with it. Or at least he... You know, he's just kind of telling me just to do better next time. And, and, and you know that you've been too casual with the Lord. Can I just see your hand? Can I just pray for you today, if that's you? Just a sense of being too casual. Just permitting things to prolong and to, and to exist that should not be allowed. Holy Spirit, come and move in power today. I pray that you would just breathe in this room. I pray that you would just right now set us free. I thank you that you are the God who is a consuming fire. And so, Lord, I pray that as we get closer to you, the things that should not exist would go. The things that should not be allowed to continue in our life would be burned up and consumed in Jesus' name. So we give you everything that should not be there. We give you everything, God, that we have made peace with or that we have allowed to, to, to persist in our life. God, forgive us of where we have become too casual, too, too uh, flippant with you. And so today we come before the God of the universe, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are in awe of you. And make us into the people that you want us to be, oh God. Set us free. Change us. Cleanse us. Make us into the men and women, God, that you want us to be. We give you thanks and praise today in Jesus' name. Amen.